Welcome to the Paul Post podcast, in which Professor Post discusses a variety of national security topics. Professor Post is an assistant director of the Chicago Projects on Security and Threats, or CPOST, and the author of three books, The Economics of War, Organizing Democracy, and Arguing About Alliances. You can follow him on Twitter at Prof. Paul Post. Professor Post, strategic competition versus great power competition. Really, does it make any difference what we call it? (laughs) That was the question of the week last week. It was because the Biden administration had come out and said that they are now going to be referring to our approach, and by our, you know, I'm an American, so I'm saying U.S. approach, towards China. They're going to be referring to it as strategic competition not great power competition, which was the phrase that has been very much in vogue in the policy community, as well as in the administration, notably the Trump administration, as the description of U.S. policy towards China, that we are engaged in great power competition. Now, big critique of that is, what does that mean? Okay, that's more of a description. That's not necessarily a goal. Like, what, 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 is, what, what are the actionable steps that come out of that? Strategic competition raises the exact same set of questions. What does that mean? Okay, you have described the relationship as strategic competition, as strategically competitive, but how do you know that you want it? What is the objective? What? How does that inform what you're trying to achieve? To, to put it in perspective, we could think of the phrase strategic competition or the phrase great power competition as used by the U.S. administrations, we could think of those as expressing U.S. grand strategy, right? And a grand strategy is yet another word that we have to spend a lot of time unpacking. What exactly does it mean? But a key example that's often used when folks talk about grand strategies, they talk about the U.S. strategy towards or the U.S. approach towards the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And that was based on the notion of containment, And so if you take a word like containment and you compare it to something like strategic competition or great power competition, you could see why a phrase like great power competition or strategic competition would be criticized because containment at least actually suggests what you're trying to do. You're trying to prevent the other side from expanding its reach further than where it already has reach. And that was indeed U.S. strategy during the Cold War. Now, I'm not saying that that's the right strategy to have approached because that fed into notions like the domino theory, the idea that, oh, if we let one country fall to communism, all these other countries are going to start to fall to communism. So I'm not saying that containment was the right policy, but you can at least hear that word and say, okay, I've, I've got an idea of what that means, what the objective is, and how you know if you're achieving the objective. But with either of these competition themes, it's just not clear. And so that's part of the reason why folks are just saying, hey, it seems like you're just taking one phrase and replacing it with a new phrase, but they're basically just the same phrase, same idea, and this isn't productive. But something that I have found very intriguing is there have been some folks who have pushed back on that. And Really, it was a great suggestion from one of my grad students in our class. So in my intro to international relations class, the students were asking about this. They were asking about this very question. What does this mean? And we were talking about it. And the student, the TA, uh, Madeline Stevens, she brought up, well, I mean, 
think about it. If you go from referring to your competition with China as great power competition and now you've changed it to strategic competition, doesn't that suggest that the U.S. doesn't want to refer to China as a great power? And so doesn't it suggest that it's a way of China, if you will, or the way for the U.S. to kind of throw shade on China to kind of say, you're not really in our league. We're not going to refer to this as great power competition because then that suggests that we view you as a great power and we don't we don't want to do that. We are the main superpower. This is still the unipolar moment. And if we recognize you as a great power, then that that is our way of kind of giving you a certain level of status and perhaps even allowing you to achieve certain foreign policy objectives that we don't want to see happen. The other thing it does, some individuals on Twitter pointed this out when I've tweeted about this, and I thought this was an excellent point, is also by changing the phrase – it is beneficial to your allies because when you say great power competition, if you use that phrase to describe the competition between the United States and China, what that's doing is saying, well, the U.S. and China are the great powers and everybody else is not. That includes U.S. allies. Now, you could see where this would be really important to not do that in light of, say, AUKUS, which we just recently talked about on this podcast, right? That if you're going to refer to U.S. – if we take a step back here, if you view AUKUS as a response, as a form of balancing towards China – then if you're using the phrase great power competition to talk about U.S. policy towards China, then that necessarily means that you view, you being the United States, view Britain and Australia as not great powers, which that might be the objective truth, but that can lead to insulting kind of vibes towards your allies. And as we already know from AUKUS, and we talked about in the last episode, um, the U.S. already has enough problems with insulting allies. They don't need to do it further. So I think there's also this element of by changing the phrase, it's simultaneously lowering the status of China and raising the status of your allies by saying, no, we're all equals in this, right? The U.S. can spin it that way, but they can also spin it as saying, and we're not in the same, China is not in the same league as us. So China's not a threat then? That is a whole other question. <laughs> That's a whole other question. That goes back to something I think we talked about a while ago on the podcast, and that is back when the vice presidential debate was happening between Pence and Harris. Great question was asked of them, and the question was China, enemy, competitor, rival. Which of the three? That was the question. I thought it was a great question, and neither Pence or Harris directly answered the question, but I, I then wrote a Twitter thread about it and then had a War on the Rocks piece about it, and then I think we even talked about it on the podcast about this idea. Which of those labels most accurately describes China vis-a-vis -vis the United States? Is it a competitor? Is it a rival? Is it an enemy? And I think ultimately what I said was that it's absolutely a rival. It's more than a competitor, because a competitor, even though we're using the phrase great power competition, we're using the phrase strategic competition, whichever of those, and we're using the notion com competition, that would suggest just competitor. But competitor, when used in international relations by IR scholars, typically connotes some sort of friendly 
relationship. The U.S. and Germany are competing for the automobile industry, right? The U.S. and France are competing in the airline industry, right? These are this is notions of competition typically used in the economic sphere. But when you use the phrase competition to say we're competing for influence with countries in a region, we're in competition to gain allies to try to counter the other side. We view the actions taken by this country as being aggressive. Basically, when you start to bring in a military angle to it, and not a military cooperation angle, but a military competition angle to it, it stops to be just competition. Competition is still there, but now it starts to move into those other two categories, enemy or rival. Now, the difference between them basically is enemy is the extent to which you want to see the side defeated and destroyed. And so you can say enemy actually very well captures U.S.-Soviet policy during the Cold War. We had nukes aimed at each other. The objective was to undermine the other side. And indeed, one of the sides eventually did collapse and actually ceased to be a sovereign unit in the international system. The Soviet Union collapsed. I don't think that explains U.S. policy towards China. I don't think U.S. policy towards China is trying to induce the collapse of the regime, the collapse of China's system, nor do I think the same of China. But there's definitely military, a strong military component to this competition, and to me, that's what makes it a rival rather than, say, enemies. How does China see it? So China... You know, it's always hard to know exactly how China sees it. But we do know some things. We know a couple things. First of all, just the other day on Twitter, when I was tweeting about this notion of strategic competition versus great power competition, I actually shared a quote by President Xi that he made at Davos just this year, where he talked about competition. He talked about how the U.S. and China are engaged in competition and fully acknowledged it as such. But he used it in to say that this is not a – he even explicitly says this is not a Cold War zero-sum relationship, hence going back to the notion of like enemies. And I think that China definitely also does not view the United States as an enemy, and I also don't think the U.S. views China as an enemy. He exclusively using the phrase competition, and he even talks about how it should be competition of the healthy sort, competition like running a race against each other where both people are both – you know, competitors are making each other better. And I've actually heard this phrase used by other officials. Um, a couple years ago, there was a delegation kind of doing a Midwest tour, um, a delegation of individuals from China's foreign ministry and embassy in D.C., as well as the consulate here in Chicago. And they, they wanted to meet with some students here at the university, and they had reached out to me. And I set up a meeting with you know some students. But beforehand, I got to speak with them. And by speaking with them, basically, I sat there and listened as the <laughs> head of the delegation who was from the foreign ministry talked. And he almost used the exact same phrasing. He said, you know, this is about we don't like the idea of Cold War. It's competition. Competition can be healthy. Competition can improve both sides. And so that, that to me, I think that, that, you know, given that I hear this from multiple sources and very credible sources, right, including President Xi himself, it seems like, yeah, this is probably a legitimate way in which they view it, that they don't necessarily view it as enemy. But 
do they go as far as rivalry? That's kind of where you're not sure. You know, the, the rhetoric just suggests that they want the U.S. and China relationship to be like the U.S. and German relationship or the U.S. and French relationship. But I'm not so sure about that. I think that within, maybe not what they say publicly, but there are other things that are said publicly for sure. Maybe not, you know, uh, uh, for example, vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan and U.S. policy towards Taiwan and so forth that suggests that there's more of an edge to it than just friendly competition. So I think that even China would probably agree at the end of the day, the government, the Chinese government would agree that it's a rivalry, not just friendly competition, but not to the level of enemies. So how would China see Taiwan as an enemy, a competitor, or a rival? None of those, because it views Taiwan as part of the country. <laughs> so you can't be competing with yourself. That's, that, that's the complication of this whole thing. And that's the one issue. There's, there's a lot of issues that China has with its neighbors. This is part of the reason why AUKUS was developed, because this is part of the reason why Australia wants these submarines, right? They have huge concerns about growing influence by China's navy, and so that's big reason why they wanted this deal. So they have real issues. They've had ongoing issues with Japan. They recently just had a hot conflict. In fact, it's still low level, but still going with India. They have issues with their neighbors. But I think the biggest flashpoint that folks are concerned about is Taiwan. And the reason why is because of what I just said, partially in jest, which is that unlike those other relationships where China's government fully acknowledges that there is a Japanese government, that there is an Australian government, that there is an Indian government. When it comes to Taiwan, that recognition is not there. There is this strategic ambiguity, if you will, regarding what are they going to do vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. Will they try to reclaim it? Will they try to not just reclaim it, but will they try to actually take it back by force, actually gain, regain physical control of it. Because they, they claim to have control over it, but they don't actually have control. Will they take steps to actually gain control? Would Taiwan take steps to actually, to potentially provoke that? Or yeah, provoke that response. Could the U.S. take steps to provoke that response? And indeed, we just heard last week about how the U.S. troops have been in Taiwan and have been stationed there. And how about how this is something that has been kept kind of secret by both sides as a way to not allow escalation to take place. So the Taiwan issue is the one issue where I could see where you could see U.S. and China relations go from rivalry to enemy. And the reason why is because this issue, unlike those other issues, which are serious issues, but unlike those other issues, this one is about the nature of the state itself. And for most states, including China, that is fundamental. And that is where you draw a line and you say, nope, this is an issue that's serious to us. It doesn't matter if we want to compete with you and trade or these other areas. We're drawing the line on this issue. You can't mess with this issue. In any competition, regardless of whether it's strategic or a great power competition, you need to field a full team. And currently, the American Foreign Service and Ambassadorial Corps is totally gutted because of people like Ted Cruz. What's going on there and what can be done to fix it? Yeah, so this has been an ongoing problem, not even just with the Biden administration. I mean, the uh, the... The problem that we're talking about here is not having a fully staffed diplomatic core. 
And so whether that's at the ambassadorial level, whether that's at the bureaucratic level, such as deputy, you know, assistant secretary of defense or state or what have you, people need to be in these positions in order for U.S. foreign policy to run effectively. And during the Trump administration, these positions largely went unfilled because the administration just chose not to fill these positions. So you had a lot of individuals who were in acting roles. And a big problem with folks being in acting roles is that when they're in an acting role, it's hard to get people to do what you want them to do, right? Because they're like, well, you're just act like you could be fired any moment, right? You haven't been confirmed by the Senate. How long are you even going to be here? So why should I really be doing what you want me to do? That's the biggest issue with someone being in an acting role as opposed to being confirmed. So that was a big issue. That was probably the primary issue with the Trump administration. With the Biden administration, it's because senators such as Ted Cruz are not allowing the nominations to go forward. Is it for the same reasons as the Trump administration of trying to, say, undermine the deep state of the State Department? No, I, it, it's different reasons, at least according to what we know. And... You could disagree with the tactics that Cruz is using, but you could see where he's coming from, at least in terms of thinking he needs to draw a hard line. What do I mean by that? So as best as I understand the situation is Cruz is doing this because he thinks the U.S. should be taking a harder line with respect to Russia and that the U.S. should be imposing sanctions to stop Nord Stream to pipeline. But the Biden administration doesn't want to do that because they're trying to have friendly relations with Germany. And of course, Germany is in a little bit of a delicate state because they just had an election. You have a new government coming in. And so the Biden administration is trying to manage that relationship. Besides the fact that Germany is just such a key player for being able to bolster NATO and you're trying to make further progress in that direction, the Biden administration would prefer to take a softer line vis-a-vis Germany. But imposing these sanctions to prevent the development of this pipeline, though targeted towards Russia, would also hurt Germany. And so that's really what this comes down to is a disagreement on these sanctions. What Cruz has chosen to do is in order to get his point across and in order to get the sanctions imposed, he is holding up nominations to ambassadorial posts. Again, you could disagree with that tactic, and I do disagree with that tactic. But I do think that if that really is his motivation for it, I think that's not an unreasonable approach. It really does come down to a fundamental disagreement about should we be taking a harder line towards Russia, even if it potentially hurts allies, or should we not because it'll help allies, right? And this is – I think someone like a Cruz, which this is where he shared something with Trump, would say, no, we need to take a hard line because Germany's not being a good ally by trying to have this relationship. And the Biden administration is taking a different approach by saying this is something that Germany wants, it's complicated, and we should try to support this. So I think that's what's going on here is this disagreement, but what's the problem is that these nominations, many of which have nothing to do with this, it's not even like these are nominations for European capitals. Some of them are, but not all of them are, are being held up because of this. It strikes me more of a, I'm trying to think of a polite way of saying pissing contest. Um, so how do you fix something like that? I don't think there is a need for a more polite way. I think that's exactly what's going on. I don't know if you can. I think for, first things first, which is, we have to see what kind of relationship starts to develop between the Biden administration and the new German administration. I think that's going to be one key piece of this. If it truly is due to 
arguments about what kind of relationship, economically speaking, Germany should have with Russia. If that's truly what's going on and the U.S. is trying to give Germany space to develop that relationship, then obviously what comes out of this new German government is going to be key. Because, I mean, you could see a situation where maybe there's some compromise agreement and something. I mean, you know, because it's, it's a parliamentary system and they're doing all sorts of they're doing all sorts of like haggling and so forth. And who knows, maybe one of the things that comes out of it is that whole deal just falls apart and they end up not doing it anymore. I mean, you, you could see that. that. That's one possibility. So I think we have to first see what comes out of that. Then. Because if that gets rectified on its own, then that removes this argument for continuing to take a soft line vis-a-vis Russia and Germany on this policy. But we don't know if that'll solve it, right? Because maybe Cruz or whoever the other senator is, you know, if it's not Cruz, it could be someone else, decides to pick another issue to try to hold up these nominations. So I think that that's that's the other side of it. Now, there has been some criticism that the Biden administration hasn't been super prompt in appointing these positions. You're also nine months into an administration that's been dealing with a lot, right? There's been a lot on the plate of the Biden administration. So the fact that they haven't been able to fully put forward all these nominees is not the most shocking thing in the world. But again, for me, the first step has got to be to see how the new U.S.-German relationship shakes out. You seem remarkably tolerant of how slow the Biden administration is. The Biden administration knew that even before they won the election that they would have all these appointments to make. I mean, it's not like, oh, oh, I've just realised we actually need this ambassador. No, it, it doesn't really work that way. Sorry, Professor, the excuse of we've had a lot to deal with isn't really cut and mustard. Yeah. So, I mean, this is (laughs) the that's an argument. That's an argument to be made. That's an argument to be made is that they should have had this all dialed in and ready to go. That's possible that they did. And the other possibility is that they decided that this is just not, if you will, a hill worth dying on. That's another possibility is that there's so many things on the agenda, domestic as well. Right. Raising the debt ceiling, getting the spending bill through all this that it's like, you know, hey, if holding up ambassadorial posts, it makes the Republicans happy and we can get the other stuff through, then let's do it. So that could be part of it, too. You know, I'm not privy to all of that back room dealing that's going on, but that could be part of it is it could be that it's the Biden administration is slow walking this because they're like, hey, if if they focus on that and that makes them feel better. Great, because we've got bigger issues we've got to deal with, everything from COVID to debt ceiling to the budget. What does it mean to America in terms of its relationships overseas to have such a weak foreign service and ambassadorial core? Oh, I think it, it sends a, I think it sends a signal that I mean, you could view it as it sends a signal of dysfunction. You could view that. I think someone, I once heard, of, this was about a year or two into the Trump administration, he said, the biggest issue with not staffing these positions is not on the big issues. So the big issue is not the big issues, right? He's like, you know, if, if there was like a crisis in Europe, we're, we're going to be there and we're going to be able to handle that. And, and that's fine. He said, it's that they're not there on a daily basis. And he said, and when you have a fully staffed diplomatic apparatus, they're there for all the issues, 
and they can help out with all the issues, which can help them prevent a crisis from springing up. So this is where it matters, is being there on a daily presence can then help to prevent those big crises that, yes, we would then be involved with. A good example of where this kind of plays out is what we saw several months ago with Israel and Gaza, right? And when that es- when the violence escalated there, one of the things that was pointed out was, well, the U.S. doesn't even have an ambassador yet to Israel, right? Isn't this a problem? And I think we now know that the Biden administration was was indeed involved. Like there, there were officials there. They were trying to involve. They're trying to get this thing rectified. There, but I think that the lack of a ambassador and perhaps a lack of appointments to the staff there led to a well led to that situation escalating and escalating to the point to where now the U.S. has to be involved with it. And indeed, the Biden administration itself had used the phrase, we have the Israel-Palestine issue on the back burner, right? So it was, it was a literally like kind of going back to what I was saying before. We have so many issues. Let's just hope that this doesn't, nothing happens here. And then something did happen. And I think it's indicative that it, I think it illustrates well the process of what I'm saying, that they didn't have the full staff. And as a result, we're not there on a daily basis. We're not there to kind of question like, hey, you know, I, I, we got word that you're thinking about bombing a building that has journalists in it. Probably not a good idea. You're not going to get our backing. You know, are, uh, to what extent are U.S. officials even you know, like aware that that was happening or was going to be part of their war planning because they weren't involved in the earlier process? So I think that's a good example of where the these bigger issues can flare up due to not having the staff.